From the Inspiration offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, Associate Director here at Inspiration, and as always, I'm joined by Patrick Malloy here in the studio. Hey, Andrew, how are you? And Chris Jackson is on the line from London. How are we doing, Chris? Very well, thank you, Andrew. Good to hear your and Patrick's voices. It's always a pleasure to have you, Chris. How are things going over there? Yeah, well, uh, they're going. Who knows? It's uh, interesting times in the UK, but uh, we did beat Australia at the rugby, so we take our wins where we get them. Um, maybe that's a sore spot to talk about rugby with an Irishman on the line. But <laughs> I hear Ireland did pretty well against Japan, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Recently? Yeah, yeah sure. That, that was a few weeks ago, but yeah, sure. <laughs> well, we get our rugby news a little bit behind schedule in the United States. Where did you watch that game, Patrick, if I recall correctly? is somewhere in Ohio? Yes, northern Ohio. Is a big uh, Japan rugby fan? Japan huge, huge. loyalists over there? Pe- people in the streets uh, celebrating. Oh, fantastic. If you guys finish moving, finally. <laughs> yeah, is this going to be our third on the trot episode of the, the moving travails of uh, Andrew and Patrick. The, the real question is, have you moved? Yeah, where are you these days? That is a, is a much longer conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gents. So I think uh, we've been getting some great uh, emails in. Do we want to cover some of those? Thanks. Thanks always to our listeners for their excellent questions. So we got two in. Um, they're both touching on a similar theme. Uh, one by a listener, Phil. Another by another listener, Rodrigo. Uh, and really, they're talking about can you use green hydrogen to produce synthetic carbon neutral fuels? So this is a topic that comes up quite a bit. The, the broader concept behind it is called power to X. Uh, this is an idea that's been particularly popular in Europe, certainly in Germany, but also picking up popularity in uh, places like China and in the US around the idea of hydrocarbons that we use today inside our vehicles, planes and boats actually you know, are essentially combinations of hydrogen with carbon. So if you can make the hydrogen in a zero emission way, and you can use carbon capture technology to take carbon from the atmosphere or to take it from other carbon intensive processes, can you create effectively the exact same fuels we're already using today in our energy system, but just create a zero emission version of that? And so there are a couple of people who are doing that. Um, probably the, the best known company in Europe that's doing a lot of work around that is a German company called Sunfire. Um, they've been building um, small sort of pilot plants around Germany that do synthetic diesel and synthetic kerosene and things like that. So that's certainly quite an interesting space. The issue at the moment is cost. Um, green hydrogen costs are still relatively high in a lot of these markets, partly due to scale, partly due to the fact that uh, in a lot of these areas, people haven't quite figured out the right regulatory environments for it and the right business models. But also, they really do require quite good carbon capture or uh, direct air capture technologies to get that carbon at a cost-competitive level that is also appropriate. So that's also taken a little bit of time. But it is a question that probably will come into focus much more quickly from the 2030s onwards when people start to go, you know, we really haven't done enough to change our energy systems to a zero emission solution. And if hydrogen is getting really cheap from green renewable sources and direct air capture or carbon capture has started to become more uh, widespread, more sort of um, commercially appropriate and and more tested, um, we may well see that actually as a sort of step, people go, well, rather than phasing out hydrocarbon, why don't we start creating some green hydrocarbons and we can piggyback on all the existing assets that we already have. Um, But for now, that seems to be probably cost prohibitive. Um, Watch the space would be my answer to uh, Phil and to uh, Rodrigo. All right. Well, that was thorough. I thoroughly enjoyed that. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to be joined by Adele Litterdale, who is the Hydrogen Project Officer for the Orkney Island Council. 
and also John Klipschen, who is the hydrogen manager for the European Marine Energy Center in the Orkney Islands. For our American listeners and for hopefully other people in the world who are as ignorant as we are, where is the Orkneys? <laughs> what are we talking about? Chris? Yeah, okay. So, so, so for people who don't know, so the Orkneys is um, a collection of islands that um, are, if you go to the very top of the United Kingdom, top of Scotland, there's a place called John O'Groats. It's the sort of furthest land point within the main island of the United Kingdom. And if you threw a stone especially far, sort of Goliath style north, you would hit basically the collection of Orkney Islands, um, the capital of which is called Kirkwall. Um, there's about 15,000 people who live uh, on the islands there. It's a lot of tourism. I think Orkney Island is probably the second most visited tourist um, sort of cruise site uh, across the UK or even maybe even in Northern Europe. Um, very, very popular site to visit in the summer. Really beautiful and um, amazing history. And for those who are whiskey drinkers, uh, it's also the home to Highland Park, the distillery up there. Oh, I do actually. <laughs> now, now I know what you're talking about. Uh, and, and gin, apparently, too, if I, it sounds like, yes? Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, interestingly enough, someone was saying to me that I think that's because that's a new distillery was what someone was trying to tell me on the island. Apparently, gotcha. if you're trying to launch a whiskey distillery, it takes a couple of years before you can make money. So you start making gin first. And then once your first batch is you know five, six years old, you can start selling whiskey. I've got uh, the that Irishman is, seems to want to weigh in. <laughs> that, is, that is exactly how you do it. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, great. Good afternoon, Adele speaking. Hi, Adele. This is Andrew Leadham. How are you? Hi, Andrew. Good. Yes, yourself? This is John here. Good to hear from you, Adele. Hi, John. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. All right. Well, thank you guys both for, for joining us. And I, I just wanted to start for our listeners with a sort of broad overview. And I think uh, maybe we can start with Adele. If you could provide an overview of the current green hydrogen projects underway in the Orkneys, that would be great. Sure. I'm Adele Lederdale and I am the Hydrogen Projects Officer at the local authority here or council if you're listening from the UK. Um, and we have a number of green hydrogen projects underway in Orkney at the moment and we're in quite a lucky position that we can call all of our hydrogen projects here green, um, which is great. Basically the initial project was um, what we call the Surf and Turf project. So. Um, if you pull up on Google as you're listening a, a map of the Orkney Islands, you'll see that it's made up of a lot of different inhabited islands, so it's not just one big landmass, basically, um, which is both an opportunity and uh, some of the, the struggles that we might have had with the projects as well, as you'll find out a little bit later on. So the initial project was one of, one of our smaller islands um, on Edie, with about 100 population. It happens to be the site of EMEC's tidal turbine test site, and the community of 100 people also own a 900 kilowatt wind turbine. We have an issue in Orkney whereby our turbines are often curtailed when the grid reaches its capacity, and that particular turbine in ED happened to be curtailed around 50 or 60% of the time. Um, but EMEC were also looking at their kind of fixed grid connection as well and realising that the demand for the site was going to be soon outweighed for the, the amount of electricity they were able to accept onto the grid. So that was kind of how the, the hydrogen concept was really born in Orkney. You know, what can we do with this curtailed energy? What can we do to stop this pinching in the electricity grid? And the answer seemed to be that we would use electrolysis um, in that instance to generate hydrogen. 
So that was our first site of a half a megawatt electrolyzer there, um, some storage for the hydrogen, and really where the kind of um, initial concept for the, the transport of hydrogen around the island. So we have road infrastructure that's not suited to heavy vehicles, so we had to design specific trailers for carting the hydrogen around. And we've also had to tackle transporting the hydrogen at sea, um, because ED is obviously an island, as I mentioned before. And that started to build up this kind of um, puzzle with hydrogen. So once we were able to get the hydrogen off the island um, and onto the mainland of Orkney, there is a 75 kilowatt fuel cell um, on, on our harbour infrastructure, which is owned by the, the Orkney Islands Council at the moment. Um, and that reconverted the hydrogen back into electricity, where it was used to service some um, vessels, seagoing vessels or ferries. Um, while they were kind of waiting dockside. So that was really the initial hydrogen project in Orkney, the, the kind of first concept, and very early on in the project, um, even as it was being designed, um, the scalability element became very apparent. So that's kind of where we've seen this roll-off of, of additional projects, such as the Big Hip project, which added an extra site of electrolysis on another island, addressing that curtailment again, um, and that's a one megawatt electrolyzer this time. So we have two generation sites of hydrogen now, um, and also we were adding additional end uses with the second project, the Big Hit project, which were transport. So we have five hydrogen vans for the, the fleet in the Orkney Islands Council, uh, and also this element of heat as well. So a local primary school um, uh, received some hydrogen catalytic boilers. So with these two projects, really, we're encompassing sort of all the issues that we might expect to um, broach when we're looking at using hydrogen to address kind of future energy needs. So supply, demand, logistics, uh, and then also your, your heat power and transport aspect of that. And I guess from these projects, the kind of, well, the ball kept rolling. <laughs> um, and we have the um, sort of marine projects now, which I'll maybe pass you along to John to discuss those. So EMEC are very much involved in, in the marine um, projects here in Orkney as well. So John, yeah. Okay, so I'm John. I'm the hydrogen manager based at the European Marine Energy Centre. I have oversight of a large number of hydrogen projects that we're working on at the moment, uh, many of which engage uh, our colleagues in the council. Uh, others don't, but may do it in future. And it's really been EMEC's role to... Um, take the journey onwards from the initial projects, um, focusing more on applications, um, problem solving, uh, integrating hydrogen into the infrastructure here. So EMEX background, we were set up 16 years ago as a wave and tidal test site, enabling developers of marine energy conversion devices to explore how they can best deploy their technologies. And over the years, there have been many, many successes and failures. Tidal test site we have over at ED, uh, as Adele said, has got an export limit and it was clear that it would take only a small number of devices to exceed that limit at any one point in time. And, and that's why EMEC took the decision to investigate hydrogen. So that's why everything came together on that island. Subsequently, um, infrastructure build-out then led us to look at applications and in particular uh, the, the need for us to have lifeline services connecting the communities here based around ferry transportation uh, led us to think, can we do something about that? Now, the ferries uh, run around the islands and in between Scotland and the islands account for about a third of our energy consumption uh, and therefore significantly impact the emissions from the islands. So that was an obvious candidate to look at the question, can we use hydrogen? 
the answer, yes, we think we can. So we have two projects running currently, one of which is to repurpose the current ferry that runs between Orkney Mainland and the island of Shappensay. And that project, which has the, the acronym HIDIME, is allowing us to put hydrogen in as a co-fuel with the diesel and that's going to enable us to explore how we transport hydrogen for use as a fuel on a vessel. Also understanding the safety cases around that as we are at that point using fuel say, in, in anger rather than just transporting it. So impacts with passenger numbers, crew training is very important on that. And in fact it turns out that is the only project of its kind where hydrogen or marine transportation is being stored below deck. Everyone else is having to store it above deck at the moment. So we've engaged significantly with Lloyd's Register, who are one of the prime companies involved in regulation of vessels, development of insurance practices and safety cases, and they've developed a whole portfolio of information to support the safety case for using hydrogen on that vessel. So we're just going through the final phase of training, prior to that right now, and it's expected that before the end of this year, we will have our maiden voyage on a hydrogen dual fueled vessel, which is really exciting. Huge amount of context there, and I, we're going to probably dive into some and pry through some of the other projects as we go through the questions. I, I, but I wanted to just quickly ask I mean, when Emic originally decided to look at hydrogen, I think the timing was of 2013, 2014. I mean, you know, this is very, very nascent stage sort of for green hydrogen projects globally. I think, if I'm not mistaken, you might even have been ITM Power's first firm order at the time for an electrolysis unit. So the obvious question that kind of comes to mind is why did you go down that route of hydrogen electrolysis instead of thinking about, I don't know, battery storage or thermal heat storage? And, and you know, how did you even kind of learn about it and how did that fit in? Because, you know, it isn't necessarily intuitive why at the time that early on this had kind of come onto the radar. Okay, uh, so we, we did have a, a decision to make, uh, which was whether to go for battery or whether to look at hydrogen. And initially we were thinking about how can we get the most out of our grid connection. And if you think about generation of tidal energy, it has a natural peak and trough twice during the day as the tides ebb and flow. Now, that will mean that at some points in the day you will be maxing out your connection or maxing out your generation. At other points in the day, you will have a very low, if not zero, generation of electricity. So there is a need to find something if you're going to provide a balanced or some sort of a, a base load of electricity have something that will balance it. Now a battery will do that and it will do that very very effectively depending on the size of battery you need, um, where space is at a premium which it is on our production site that may be an issue. However if you are looking at other routes to market whereby you can generate some value it was very obvious to EMAC at the time that there were other routes to market and in particular using hydrogen as a value stream um, using it as a fuel for transportation relative to simply just regenerating electricity. There was an opportunity there potentially to decarbonize as well as displace the fossil fuel that's currently in use. So I think that, that was the sort of thinking that went through EMEC uh, at the time. It predates my involvement in the project. Yeah, there was actually as well around that time, there was at least one feasibility study that one of our project partners, Community Energy Scotland, that was looking into battery storage on another island and another curtailed wind turbine as well. So even at that early stage, 
uh, the costs involved, and like John said, the space premium as well, hydrogen was coming out as more cost-effective option at that time. Uh, the local power station here, so I'm sure lots of you will be aware that Orkney generates more than its uh, local demand electricity-wise from renewable resources, um, but there are times, you know, obviously when the wind's not blowing or the demand's a little bit higher, that we still have to export energy from the grid. So we have a power station in the local area run by Scottish and Southern Energy and they had trialled a battery project on that power station also um, around that time where the decision was kind of being made as to, to which route to go down. But, so that both the feasibility and the initial project were kind of, you know, not, not deemed to be suited to the, the local needs here in Orkney, which I guess ultimately led to, to the decision to use hydrogen. Yeah, and Adele, just to follow on on that, how did hydrogen and green hydrogen fit into the energy and economic development strategy and, and how is that playing out as we as we look at today? So when we were developing the strategy, um, really, you know, we, we obviously looked at all methods of hydrogen production and, and clearly in Orkney, we, we already had, you know, two sites of electrolysis on Orkney at, at present. We don't really have a massive um, industrial use, so there's no steel production or, or any production of that kind, so we, we don't have steam methane reformation here that we need to green up. So it didn't seem logical in the decarbonizing kind of world that we're living in now to kind of add that kind of production of hydrogen and then have to take away the carbon again when we were already going down that electrolysis route. And, you know, there's a few um, more studies coming out now, notably the the Royal Society's one of last year that's kind of looking at the costings of of different methods of hydrogen production. And, And we still feel confident that, you know, electrolysis is the route that we'd be most happy to go down. I think, you know, we're in a lucky position where we probably don't need to employ an interim technology where we can skip right to that fully decarbonised version. Um, I think that's kind of where where we were going with looking at what type of hydrogen production. I think also the the technology we've gone for maps on well to renewable energy, where you do have intermittency, you do have quite a spiky profile of electricity generation. So having technology that will respond well to that uh, electricity profile is really important to us. And that's one of the reasons that uh, the initial deployments have gone for uh, PEM electrolysis rather than any other sort. And indeed, have we tried to run some sort of steam or methane reformation process electrically uh, I'm not aware of any technology that would have been matched on particularly well to renewable energy sources, which we have in abundance here. Obviously, in some senses, there's a certain amount of uh, unique aspects for the Orkneys that kind of do make it a case study that is fascinating, but maybe doesn't map on so well to everyday uh, experiences in other parts of the world. But I guess what I what we do want to drive at is that because Orkneys has been involved with green hydrogen projects for a lot longer than most other parts of the world and really is seen by a lot of people in the community as a really interesting and pioneering example of how a hydrogen energy system could start to look like. Maybe you could both talk about some of the sort of lessons that have been learned during the initial projects, you know, sort of what things kind of went well, what, you know, you've been pleasantly surprised about since these green hydrogen projects went in, what what didn't go so well, or, or dare I say, what went horribly, maybe, or not, or not so well, and kind of what are the sort of main takeaways you kind of advise people who are thinking about, or, you know, local governments that are thinking about these types of technologies to consider if they wanted to explore a green hydrogen type solution? So, lots of, uh, lots of points in that question and I'll, I'll endeavour to answer at least some of them. Uh, in, in terms of, uh, I like to use the word challenges, there have been challenges every step of the way. These are demonstration projects. They are pioneering, cutting edge, you know, use whatever language you think is appropriate there. Um, the fact that these are, in some cases, world first 
deployment means necessarily things were not going to go right. Uh, so after that, that you're deploying this technology on an island off an island off an island, and it would have been an island off an island off an island off an island if we sourced technology from Europe or from the States or another location. This would have certainly added some of the complexity in terms of the scale that we're operating at. These are emerging technologies as well. So deploying technologies which are themselves upscaling may well be first of a kind. Coming back to your earlier comment, that um, yeah, we may well have been ITM Power's largest deployment at the time. Um, this is certainly in terms of installation, there's a whole lot of learning there. Add on to that the fact that we're deploying into a climate that for most months of the year is fairly unpleasant for many folk. I love it here, by the way. I feel very much at home. Good to know. <laughs> and certainly the containers that, are, that the, uh, the equipment was sat in, they didn't like living up here particularly well. So understanding how to marinize the equipment, how to protect it from the elements, how to ensure that it's fit for survival in a saline, damp, cold, windy environment. I'm not doing a good job of selling all here, yeah, am I? Yeah, because it's beautiful, damp. Beautiful, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but certainly some lessons learned there. In terms of the electrical integration, how we connect a variety of renewable energy sources to this technology, be not the tidal or the wind assets. That's presented some uh, engineering challenges as well. Uh, staff training has been something we've had to work on intensely. And also, you would expect there to be a whole raft of standards in place, or for a lot of the kits being first of a kind, it doesn't exist. So the base know-how is very much vested in a small number of people with key suppliers. And in the last few years, there has been a flurry of activity. Started to get some of this stuff written down and detailed, because overarching all of this is a, is a safety agenda. And EMEC have very much taken the point, if it's not safe, it's not happening. So we faced challenges with that. Um, and that was before we got the stuff working. From there, well, there's been more challenges beyond there. Adele, do you want to pick up the story? Plenty. So um, local infrastructure that we kind of mentioned before. So things like the roads tend not to be, um, not have foundations underneath them. So you can't just use kind of standard uh, haulage trucks. Um, basically, we have to design everything for the local area in terms of that, make things light um, and able to go on these roads on these small islands. I would say that we've faced um, a really large barrier in terms of the legislation and regulation, particularly at sea. So transporting hydrogen on road is not the same as transporting hydrogen on sea. Transporting hydrogen in one container versus 10 containers linked together, they are not the same thing either, whether you're carrying it as a fuel or as a cargo, all separate classifications. So we really had to work our way through that. Um, and John kind of touched on that earlier when we were talking as well. You know, we've been working with um, key stakeholders in that area, particularly the Marine Coast Guard Agency. Um, we work with the local um, emergency services here to provide training at things like the hydrogen refueling station and the fuel cell. Um, and just, you know, with the sites where you're kind of um, doing the transfers of hydrogen, which tend to be the kind of weak points in the system in terms of safety, you know, when you have human error, when you have a break in a connection. Um, so just making sure that everybody is aware of what is where, um, having local emergency plans for the, for the areas, um, just making sure that, that they comply with health and safety regulation where it stands. Uh, as John alluded to, some of it doesn't exist yet, um, but actually... I've had it on, on authority from our, our health and safety team that that tends to be the way in these type of innovation projects that, you know, you kind of get 
the technical aspects um, sort of nailed down in your project and then the, the delivery and the, and the project goes and then the safety case builds around that because the regulation is often retrospectively applied uh, when you're using kind of fuel in a novel way or, or you're kind of building a, a new project that hasn't been done before. So it's not uncommon to do it that way around, I've, I've been told. Um, but also um, regulation about connecting into the national grid has been very challenging. Um, yeah, so it's just, you know, we all those pieces of paper um, we've had to kind of deal with as well. Two other big challenges uh, that I wanted to add to the list, one of which is to do with the cost. Um, these projects have not been cheap. There's been a lot of money put in to make the demonstrators work. And one of the key questions we get is, well, can you make hydrogen cheaply? And at this point in time, well, we can make hydrogen at an okay sort of a price. Uh, is it cheap compared to natural gas? No, it will never be that cheap in the immediate future. However, if you look at the projections for natural gas prices, the projections for the downward trajectory for hydrogen kit, the market price that is likely to be achieved for hydrogen in various applications, and indeed the way the carbon taxation is likely to go. What would have been perhaps a break point, 2040 sometime, I'm now seeing forecasts of around 2030, and indeed recently some that for it as, as soon as 2027. And that's brings me on to the final challenge, which is from a personal perspective. Um, Albany has declared uh, its uh, agreement that there is a climate emergency. The biggest challenge we've got is time, and that puts all of this under a lot of pressure, and no pun intended as we're talking about uh, hydrogen gas in this discussion. We are under some pressure to show just how green hydrogen can be made to work, how we can fully integrate renewables with green hydrogen production, and then onwards to applications, because there are major decisions being made around the world right now by uh, governments looking at what they're going to do to address the climate emergency that we face. And that's going to have a knock-on effect to all the suppliers that we're working with as well. They will see some superb orders in the near future, I've no doubt about that. But we need to make sure that they have their technologies fully grounded, established and ready to go as soon as possible, but above all safely. Given that the you guys are, are kind of laying a path for a whole host of potential like smaller islands and, and, and like some rural communities probably could, could use this as a, a model for their kind of engagement with renewable energy and zero carbon solutions. I'm just wondering, you know, what are your next areas of focus? Having done all that you've done, what, what's the next, uh, the next step? So one of the pieces of work that we've done at EMAC uh, is to have a look at the whole energy system here and try and work out how best we can harness uh, the electrons that we've got whizzing around our system here. We still have substantial constraints coming off the, the wind turbines. So it's really important that those turbines were, in many cases, community investments, for them to recoup their investment and gain the value from that investment. We need to be doing something to help them. That requires us then not just to start making hydrogen, but also to develop the applications. So having things like uh, the vans that Adele mentioned earlier, running around, consuming hydrogen, that's good. Uh, demonstrating a small ferry, that's good. 2021, we need to take delivery of a full, fully hydrogen-powered ferry, fingers crossed. Um, that's going to be a substantial consumer of hydrogen. We've got another project running with the, the local leisure centre, uh, investigating how we might uh, address that with combined heat and power, um, again, fueled by hydrogen. Um, we've got a gin distillery that's now looking at how we can displace a fossil fuel, in this case, uh, liquid petroleum gas, 
and replace that with hydrogen. And that has captured an awful lot of attention from some of the big brand Scottish distillers. So um, a lot of interest there. And the final one I'm going to mention right now is that we're now having a foray into hydrogen aircraft. Now that might uh, be an anathema to some. However, when you look at air travel, 50% of all flights are less than 500 kilometres which means they can, in principle, be serviced by a small aircraft of 20 seats or thereabouts, which is ideal for island hopping, dropping in between um, intercity flights, and the fact that, in the case of Orkney, we're dependent on aircraft as well as ferries for lifeline services. That's for strategic deliveries, moving doctors, nurses, teachers around, and indeed hospital visits. It's really important that we have a look at this as well. So next year we will be trying trialling a small hydrogen aircraft here and look forward to the results of that. Yeah, and I think just to add on to that, I think the kind of themes that we're seeing are for all the areas, so there are other areas in Scotland and the UK looking at hydrogen as well, they really focus in on what their own needs are. So in cities they have, you know, air quality targets that they need to hit. So hydrogen, you know, in terms of pollutants, particulates and other emissions, you know, is a great option for them. Everybody under that decarbonisation umbrella, but like John just mentioned, you know, some of our aircraft are going to be, well, they're relying on a fuel that's becoming discontinued. So, you know, we're already addressing that where, you know, we're not going to have the fuel that we require for that aircraft. And then also addressing this kind of um, constraint that we've felt really being an outlier in a kind of centralised kind of energy distribution model. So that's really where the projects are going now, is how we can address our, our energy system, you know, really to our own needs, like John mentioned. The ferries are basically what, what our buses would be in, in anywhere else in the UK. So it's like not, not being afraid to kind of look at what areas your area needs to tackle and how best to apply the technologies to those areas. And, you know, there are other rural areas, like you mentioned, but there's also areas in cities, you know, that are not so well connected either, and that's, these could be solutions really to those same issues that, that will be experienced, that are experienced, you know, in other communities. There's something of an interesting, uh, it's, it's funny of how the world works insofar as I think, you know, John, you were saying that the fuel cell project that's being looked at in the Orkneys is going to be um, for a leisure centre, is correct, right? Yeah. Uh, and that would be 100% hydrogen as the fuel source, is that correct? Yeah, correct. So what, what is quite an interesting twist that people don't realise is that um, the first ever fuel cell project in the UK was installed in 2000 in Woking at a leisure centre, a sports leisure centre run by the local council. Uh, and it was actually, it got US Department of Energy grant funding because it was the first of its kind ever installed. So it's interesting, the first ever fuel cell in the UK was a leisure centre and the first hydrogen fuel cell um, major rollout in the UK will also be at a leisure centre. So it's an <laughs> interesting theme, apparently. Well, what can we say? Swimming pools must be expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, guys. Well, I think we did have another question about pricing, but I think actually we've covered it uh, and you guys have touched on it very nicely as we've gone through. So um, I would ask that, uh, I mean, Patrick, Chris, do you have any follow up questions or have we covered everything you guys wanted to touch on? And then John and Adele, if you have anything you wanted to add, we often turn it over to the guests uh, if they have some sort of closing remarks or something that you guys feel like we missed and that we should touch on. Otherwise, I just really want to thank you guys for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
That's been great, great from this end as well. I'm going to have to pray one last question just because you can't resist um, as we've got you here. And uh, my colleagues are, are giving me a lot of um, abuse on WhatsApp saying I'm asking terrible questions, so I should stop. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, I couldn't resist. I mean, you know, is there thoughts uh, going forward given that, you know, Orkney has become this hydrogen hub that potentially could also be uh, an export and a big part of the economic development story for Orkneys in the future that if you have such an abundance of renewable resource and we're moving towards a more hydrogen-based energy system in Scotland and maybe in the rest of the UK, uh, that could be sort of part of the next chapter of economic development in Orkneys as a hydrogen export hub. I think watch this space is all I would say to that with my tongue firmly in my cheek and a smile on my face. (laughs) All right. Very good. Oh, yes. My background, I come from the chemical sector and I'm used to an environment where there are you know, multi-million projects and you know, huge transactions. So working at this scale, it's kind of a, a laboratory scale for me. So, um, well, you can actually piece those two pieces together and see where my thought processes might take me. Um, I, if it's OK with you, um, I have one, one further comment I want to make. Please, uh, please do. That, um, come home to me. Um, I I like to use an expression called electron stewardship and whilst we have got excess renewables up here and generating more electricity than we can export, making good use of those electrons is important to us because you've gone to the trouble of making them in the first place. So converting them to hydrogen, you lose some of those electrons in the process. So if we can use the electrons directly, that's great. And if we can't, then it's okay in my view to make other things. And hydrogen is one solution. Ammonia might be another direction we head down. And in fact, further chemical transformations where we add value or solve other problems and displace other uh, carbon sources uh, in the uh, the lives that we lead. I think that's also a, an important part of the journey. Uh, yeah, Adele, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I know. We, we have to come up with these taglines yeah. to keep ourselves current. Or we, I've got one as well, John. Yeah. <laughs> um, like business as usual, just promotes business as usual. So we're often asked, you know, when we're doing these projects, how it stacks up economically with the status quo as, as we see it now. And I think we're in a lucky position where with transport, we've been, been able to bring the cost of hydrogen down to match kind of roughly what we would be expecting to pay now. Um, but we don't just want to promote, you know, business as usual. The, the landscape is very dynamic in terms of fuels in terms of energy but you know we've seen directly where we live in Orkney you know the social repercussions of having energy policy placed on you from a central location we've got the highest rate of fuel poverty in the UK despite generating our in excess of our local demand uh, locally by renewables we pay one of the highest rates per kilowatt hour for electricity in the UK we also don't have access to the market, so we don't have gas. We don't have that three pence a kilowatt option in terms of heating our home either. So, you know, it's just to say that, you know, while we're generating all this renewables, you know, it's very much not for our own benefit, given that we are still in a kind of backwards position in terms of the benefits. But we can see moving forward, you know, how beneficial it's going to be in terms of carbon reduction and also, you know, social improvement and moving forward. So there is that aspect of of how it relates to people's day-to-day lives. It's going to be really important as we bring these technologies forward. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys uh, both for, for the final comments and, and for making the time to speak with us uh, today. I think, uh, I believe Patrick and Chris would be in agreement here. I think a visit, a site visit to the Orkneys for the podcast would be a great idea. What do you think? <laughs> 
Definitely. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm game. I'm totally game. <laughs> most welcome if you can make it here. I look forward to making it. Make it well, I've already been spoiled with uh, with Adele's hospitality before, but uh, maybe next time I'll be able to use the, uh, the hydrogen ferry as well. Tired it a lot. That sounds like a plan. This was a fascinating interview, and I think uh, John and Adele were incredibly helpful in sort of going back and forth from the policy side, from the engineering side, uh, seeing a whole bunch of interesting things. But why why the Orkneys? Why is this happening in the Orkneys? What is what sets the Orkneys uh, apart from from everywhere else that's that's trying these sort of projects in in green hydrogen unique factors right the 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 wind resource that that they both both john and adele spoke to um is obviously some of the best in the world probably utilizing that resource uh in in this way it probably provides a an awful lot of opportunity to engage in different systems and to convert different systems and they spoke to that in terms of addressing the the climate crisis and and doing their part in in leading the way i think What's particularly interesting about this case and probably distinct from some of the other projects that we've seen is the fact that it is a, you know, it is a fully integrated uh, system where they use the renewable energies that they produce locally uh, to produce hydrogen locally to use in the, the vehicles and, the, and the, the ferries and the heating systems. So you, you have, in effect, something along the lines of a microgrid except a microgrid that now reaches into areas that are typically referred to as kind of hard to abate or challenging or you know they're not they're not dealing with industrial stuff but but they are dealing with um, very very specific problems that that you see a lot in islands in particular it's not uncommon for islands anywhere in the world to have extremely high electricity prices relative to the nearest market or like large market and you know if they can develop these solutions and develop these approaches. They are an example to a whole host of, of uh, countries and, and, and islands around the world around how to perhaps address these, these real kind of uh, stuck challenges. And yeah, that's incredible. I think there's two, two other lessons that stand out for me and it wasn't explicitly touched on by the team. And I think it's because they are quite modest and so I don't think they, they played it up enough. Um, the reason why the Orkneys has worked as a pilot is because it had one anchor institution that was willing to make an investment in something new, take a bit of a risk and willing to try and develop and build out a technical solution, which is EMEC. Uh, you know, and John and the team there have done really well in pioneering that and uh, and kind of taking that little bit of a leap of faith to get it going. So that's the sort of first bit. You do really need to have um, a local organization, whether it's a private sector or public sector, that's willing to take that first leap with new technologies and willing to kind of think about the bigger picture and the longer term transition. And the second piece is a very supportive um, local government, uh, which has also worked a lot with the local community to get people on board. Um, you know, Adele spoke about the fact that the original feasibility work, or a lot of that was done through um, Community Energy Scotland, which was a, a public sector uh, funding group and sort of um, team of individuals that work with local communities to try and find ways to deal with some of the energy uh, poverty issues that Adele talked about and some of the considerations Patrick was talking to. So those two pieces um, really came together very well and have come together very well in the Orkneys. And I think for people trying to look at how replicable is the model, I think uh, the resource 
that exists in terms of renewable generation is always important. But actually, uh, I think having those two different groups of actors, a supportive local government, um, or at least local government bodies, and also having a main implementing agency that's willing to take the lead on the first projects to get some of the basic infrastructure up and running, some of the awareness there, so that others can follow off them is really important. Well said. Beyond that, John said something really interesting. He used a tagline that I think we should adopt here uh, at uh, Everything About Hydrogen. He used the phrase electron stewardship. What did you think of that one, Chris? Uh, I, I think it makes a huge amount of sense. I mean, you know, it is a constant discussion that comes up again and again and again around um why are we using um, precious renewable green electrons um, to create hydrogen instead of just using it directly in a battery? Uh, it's a huge part of the discourse um, that's happening now. Whenever, you know, if I post something on my LinkedIn about um, fuel cell vehicles, I'll usually always get these one or two people saying, oh, it's such a waste. We could put it straight into a battery. So that idea that this is a precious commodity, green uh, electrons for now, at least in many markets, and that it does need to be used responsibly is absolutely on point. And I think what John was pointing out is that um, stewardship isn't a sort of single point. There are many different aspects that incorporate stewardship. And it is about thinking for the longer term. And I think Adele's um, phrase as well of um, business as usual, just promotes business as usual, plays into this quite nicely, right? You know, if you're doing a stewardship of resources, that doesn't mean simply looking at what makes the most sense right here and now, promoting technologies that are here today. It's also about thinking, what does the whole system need to look like further down the line? And how do we manage the resources we have today to get towards that end state? And sometimes that might not always be so clear for people. But I think those concepts are really nice. And I think um, it's something a lot of people could relate to. Yeah, well, and speaking of the whole system, that was another thing that uh, they touched on that uh, you know, I see quite a bit of uh, coverage in the news about recently, uh, which would be hydrogen-powered flight. So Zero Avia specifically, I see everywhere. Uh, Patrick, what do you think of Zero Avia? Familiar with them? Yeah, not as familiar as I'd like. Um, yeah. like Because like, I know the founder is the same guy, I believe, uh, Val Miftikov, uh, founded uh, eMotorworks, the V2G charging company as well. So he's moved on to hydrogen. Hmm. Should we take that as an indication that Val has decided this is the end of battery electric? And that hydrogen's the way to go. Just a question: I, I, Is this an apocalyptic? I, I, I hope is this apocalyptic tongue, for my is, job prospects. I hope this is tongue in cheek, right? Uh, no, like, it, look, you know, and this and this speaks stewardship again in in a slightly different way, right? We have huge challenges in certain applications towards effectively utilizing kind of zero carbon technologies as they as they stand today. Consequently, we have to take a dynamic and flexible approach and look for best options. I believe that there is a pretty strong role for battery electric vehicles, particularly in in very you know in in a certain cohort of use cases. I think you know battery technology might well evolve. They might you know evolve energy density. That that's all in the future, and, and we can only hope. I think Adele mentioned uh, concerns around lithium supply. You know, I, I'd be more personally concerned about cobalt supply and then <laughs> trying to get rid of uh, cobalt out of batteries. But that's a conversation for probably a different podcast. Sure. Um, but but you know those are real uh, resource and, and extractive constraints that that we should have our eyes open about right that shouldn't undermine the 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 role the fact that there is a huge role for battery electric vehicles in in delivering a a zero carbon world 
for hydrogen, there's different use cases and different applications. And this is why I, I, you know, I hark back to our earlier episodes when I talked about use cases and I talked about sensitivities and flexibility. And when we get into things like like steel manufacturing, which we, we've released a piece on that everybody should look at, but um, but also, <laughs> but also some you know is a is a an industry that is sensitive to the fact that it needs a feedstock and molecular energy base. So if we're using our green electrons pro, uh, productively and effectively, then the reach and impact of those green electrons can be maximized. And I think that's how we should view this world. It should be the best case uh, engagement that we can find and being open to look for those substitution opportunities that maximize the benefit of those things. So sustainable resource use. But specifically looking at hydrogen-powered airplanes, what are we talking here? Well, apparently they can fly an airplane using hydrogen, Andrew. I, I is, it a, <laughs> is, it a viable, is it a viable option? I mean, John said 500 it's, kilometers or less. 500 kilometers or less seems... I, I, I'm sure his data is correct, right? I, I'm not debating that, but 500 kilometers or less sounds very short. Like that's a very short flight. And do we know what uh, our, our hydrogen hydrogen fuel cell airplanes are? These can they do quite a bit longer than a than a 500 kilometer flight? Because in the United States, that more more than likely is not going to cover a tremendous number of flights, right? For commercial airlines. One of the things worth bearing in mind is there is a reason why Zero Avia have come to the UK and to Europe. Um, I know, for example, that Sintef, which is the Norwegian research agency, were talking a while ago around could we have um, either battery electric or fuel cell um, light duty aircraft to do routes between uh, northern villages in Norway. And they were talking exactly to this point of, you know, most of these flights are, relatively speaking, quite short hops, sort of 30 minute hour airtime, and they are sub 500 kilometers. So I think. Uh, you're right that maybe this isn't something that um, immediately makes sense to deploy in the U.S. today uh, on the sort of light commercial plane side. Um, that probably will come later. And the company that's probably most associated with that is HES Energy Systems. They've got a couple of uh, they've got a plane called the Element One that's a concept at the moment that would be sort of a 20, 30 person plane that we can do over a thousand kilometers. So that sort of further down the line might make more sense uh, for the U.S. market. But that all being said. There is a company in the U.S. called Sky, um, which is uh, sorry, Alakai, sorry, uh, and Alakai are looking at vertical takeoff and landing, um, effectively dr- passenger drones, uh, and those passenger drones that they are looking at um, are actually going to be using hydrogen and fuel cells, and they're talking about a timeline of 2022 for rollout in the states. Um, so, you know, maybe not sort of full commercial aircraft, but certainly hydrogen and aviation. There are a few players now looking at the space, trying to come at different angles. Yeah, it's it's very early stages, I think. And, and you know, if they can get a, a you know, 500, uh, was it 500 miles or 500 kilometers? 500 kilometers. Yeah, yeah. like like that is a, a proof case that they can actually fly using hydrogen as a, as a fuel source. Now, having said that, you know, who knows where where they can go, or what the max range is, or what an aircraft has to look like to, you know, design or shift or change to to get to that kind of long range commercial flight as it is today. Sure. So uh, my understanding cool. is that they, you know, especially from the battery electric side, and I don't know if this holds true from the hydrogen fuel cell side, uh, that there's a, a use case to be made for uh, takeoff and landing being run by uh, more traditional. Uh, gas 
gas-powered turbine engines uh, and then cruising speeds and things like that. The actual the the middle part of the flight, the cruising altitude at, cru- at cruising altitude, being powered by a battery electric or fuel cell uh, engine. Is I, I mean, does yeah. that? I think that would be similar as well, right? So for the longer haul flights, yeah, that, that something something of a kind of hybridized or transitional approach would would. I would think makes sense, right? Sure. Early in this and is let's, early, early let's, days. Early let's, days. Let's be excited. We're not going to be flying to the Orkneys on a on a hydrogen fuel cell Who plane knows, just Andrew? yet. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Okay. Well, thank you guys for joining me, and uh, thank you to uh, John Clipsham and Adele Litterdale from joining us all the way from the Orkney Islands. That was a real pleasure, guys, and I I, I hope they will come back on sometime in the future. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Everything About Hydrogen. Patrick, thank you for making the time to come into the studio, and thanks to Chris Jackson for calling in from London. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast content. Give us a five-star rating, and if you have the time, we'd love to have your reviews. And if you have any questions for me or my co-hosts or any of our guests going forward, please do reach out to us via email or on Twitter, email at podcasts at inspiratia.com or on Twitter at about hydrogen. Please feel free to reach us there as well. Thank you very much. And we look forward to having you join us next time.